0: walking over here we passed uh, set up chairs and tables and thought oh my lord what poor soul is going to have to do this and uh, I'm so happy we're here and uh, I want to begin in 1958 a young minister from Montgomery Alabama issued an opinion on popular music in an article in Ebony magazine The article was called Advice for Living and he wrote, rock and roll often plunges men's minds into degrading and demoral depths. That was Martin Luther King, Jr. But he was not alone in his condemnation of this new music. In March of 1955, the Boston police issued a list of unacceptable songs. In May, the Catholic Diocese objected to an all-black show at Boston's Lowe State Theater. In 1956, the Reverend John Carroll launched an attack on rock and roll. And in 1957, there were fights between black and white rock and roll fans at Boston Garden. And then in August of 1957, Massachusetts Junior Senator John F. Kennedy ordered a Newsday article, hostile to rock and roll, read into the congressional record. And uh, there's that article. Now, more importantly, a Massachusetts junior senator joined Senator Barry Goldwater in support of an attack sponsored by Senator George Smathers, Democrat of Florida, on Broadcast Music Incorporated. That was the upstart music licensing organization that administered the right, rights to most rhythm and blues and rock and roll songs. Senator Kennedy was doing a favor for his Senate colleague. He was also trying to build up Southern support for his expected 1960 run for the White House. And he was responding to home state pressures to do something about the cultural menace posed by the black-oriented sexually tinged new music called rock and roll. Now in teaching history, one historian says adopting a narrow civil rights approach may have led many persons of every age group to miss the possibility that the study of artists and their work can be more enjoyable, exciting, and fundamental to the creation of a more just and democratic society. So the coalition of King and Kennedy, assaulting rock and roll, that's just the surface of a rich history, a history of race and gender, a history of war and politics, a history of regulatory action, of technological innovation, struggles by labor and capital, immigration and migration, economic shifts, and the creation of a whole new segment of our national population each of these contributes to the narrative and taken together with all the facts and myths and legends they make up the story of rock and roll the british scholar brian ward has written popular music popular entertainment more generally have always constituted major fields of social activity by which blacks and white racial identities, values, and interests have been defined and tested, attacked, and defended. So this is the story of popular music's transition from the lighthearted and urbane to the heavy-handed and urban, from middle-class to working-class sensibilities, from cross-generational appeals to music targeted at young people, from sheet music as sales units to records, and from primitive to more advanced technology. One writer says that by the mid-1950s, the music began to represent a fusion of all those strains of blues and country and gospel that had been kept at bay by mainstream pop. More importantly, the music in this history shifted from Anglo-European to African-American conventions, and the anecdotal evidence at least is clear. This music introduced white young people to black America. And if the introduction was to a heavily stereotypical, romanticized, and sensationalized picture of who black people were, it opened the possibility of interracialism to a generation of American white adolescents, preparing them for and inclining them toward the civil rights movement of the 1960s. Now, Thomas Jefferson, you remember him, Thomas Jefferson said, music is the passion of my soul. I hope it is yours, too. I'm going to take you back to a time when good music was popular, and when popular music was good. (laughs) And as I talk, I'm going to play some shortcuts from several songs. I want you to listen to their lyrics, listen to their instruments, listen to their rhythms, and I'm also going to show some slides. Now, this first song I'm going to play is from the 1970s, and it really isn't a part of this history, but it tells why this study can be important. It's an injunction to teachers like me.
1: Wake up, all the teachers, time to teach a new way. Maybe then they'll listen to what you have to say. They're the ones who's coming up, and the world is in their hands. When you teach the children
0: to jump the very best care. Well, with this injunction from Professor Theodore Pendergrass, <laughs> his command to teach a new way, let us proceed. In nineteen thirty-eight, a fifteen-year-old rural Alabama white youth won an amateur contest at the Empire Theater. In Montgomery, Alabama. Seventeen years later, at a bus stop just outside the theater's ticket window, a black woman was arrested for refusing to give up her seat to a white passenger. That's that plaque to Ms. Parks. And the next slide is uh, Rosa Parks' arrest record. This is really interesting to me. You see, and it may be hard to read from where you are, but. The two lines of type near the bottom, uh, says Rosa Parks, C.F., which is colored female, of 634 Cleveland Avenue was charged with chapter six, section 11 of the Montgomery City Code. Well, rock and roll formally received its name in the early 1950s. And its roots are in the distant past, but its immediate origins lie roughly in the years between Hank Williams' amateur contest victory in 1938 and Rosa Parks' arrest in 1955, and in the World War II years, which affected so much else in American life. Even before the war, dramatic changes in the music business opened the door for the birth of rock and roll. The 1930s saw significant increases in the number of radio sets in American homes up by 10% each year, and an increase in radio stations, too. The jukebox exploded when Prohibition ended and bars reopened in 1933, the numbers multiplying from 25,000 in 1934 to 500,000 by 1940. And their appetite for records was immense, and they appeared in new and more refined places in ice cream parlors, skating rinks, bowling alleys bringing popular music to anyone who had a nickel. As this ad shows, everyone from granddad to little Susie could enjoy jukebox music. In 1938, while young Hank Williams was winning an amateur contest in Montgomery, the Musicians' Union signed an agreement with radio network affiliates and independent stations that forced stations to increase their spending on live musicians but over 150 smaller stations were exempt. And most of them responded by developing programming which featured popular records with local advertising. All of it held together by a personable staff announcer who would soon gain a new name, the disc jockey. Now when Franklin Roosevelt won a second term in 1936, most newspapers opposed him. And many of them also owned radio stations. He decided to get even. In 1941, his Federal Communications Commission ordered the breakup of radio's monopolies. NBC and CBS were forced to surrender control of the broadcast day. Their control of the evening primetime hours was protected, but network authority over morning and afternoon hours was ended, freeing them for local programming with local music. Wartime military service expanded the gap between America's generations predicting the later celebration of a youth culture in the 1950s. It was our boys in uniform, just out of high school, and the girls they left behind. At Mademoiselle Magazine, a new market category was introduced, teenagers, to identify a class of consumers separate from juniors. The armed services in World War II were racially segregated, but geographically integrated. Whites from Manhattan and Mobile shared segregated barracks, canteens and bars, as did did blacks from Baltimore and Bloxy. Northern and Southern music was shared too. The wartime migration of blacks from the rural South to the urban North and West repeated earlier patterns from the early 20th century. These migrants took their music with them. Once relocated, they became an audience for it in bars, in nightclubs, and in their homes. Changing tastes saw singers become more prominent as bands faced harder times. Musicians were drafted. Tires and gasoline were rationed during the war, more expensive afterward, making touring difficult. World War I had temporarily stopped development of commercial radio, which boomed after the war. World War II stopped development of commercial television, and radio won a longer lease on uh, supremacy as America's major communications medium. After the war, the number of radio stations more than doubled, and the growing medium of television began to fill the evening hours. AM radio filled the day with recorded music. The explosion of new radio stations meant fewer listeners per station and greater competition for advertising dollars, a cutthroat business that required strong on-air salesman personalities uh, from people now called disc jockeys. And there are many more radios too. More radios meant individual family members could now select their own music. No more would a family's musical choices have to be tailored to dad's taste. This 1945 ad from Collier's Magazine shows mom and sis and Jim still in uniform all letting dad know they want their own radios so they can listen to their own music. In the 1940s, southerners, whites and some blacks, listened to what was called hillbilly music on their radios. Country music was a stable current in the pop stream. 650 radio stations broadcast live country music and country artists toured nationwide. But if country pop was alive and well, One tributary of the black pop stream, Rhythm and Blues was much less hardy. Rhythm and Blues post-war history is the history of independent record companies, of black and white disc jockeys, of black audience programming from independent radio stations. But to understand this music's appeal to young whites, you must understand who they were and what the music meant to them. They were teenagers, This is a term in general usage only since 1945, and then only in the United States. Post-war affluence made them the first young American generation with money in their pockets to spend and the freedom to reject their parents' values and discover cultural models all their own. By 1956, the average teenage weekly allowance was $10, That was equal to the disposable income of the average family in the early 1940s. Like other young white Americans, both past and present, many were influenced by or adopted aspects of the minority culture, in slang and in clothing. They faced a culture of conformity, and black music over the radio, listened to in secret, shared with a small circle of friends, offered an option to surrender to adult standards. The music was forbidden and it came from a forbidden people. It was often overtly sexual and therefore more attractive than the bland sweet songs that had sent their fathers off to war and comforted their mothers while dad was away. The war years transformed American culture and the music business too. Both of them became more democratic, more open to outsiders. The music was changing it too and listening to it is always preferable to talking about it as we listen remember this is music often made by outsiders by black and white southerners by migrants from the rural to the urban south from the south to the north the midwest and west sometimes recorded by companies formed by earlier migrants or even immigrants many of the latter jews all of these people outsiders to america's culture The songs you're going to hear in this presentation are far, far from the only songs that constitute the birth of rock and roll. Rather, they're a representative sample. If you want to pat your feet, or snap your fingers, or even dance in the aisles, please feel free. (laughs) Now this story begins with the ugly side of the wartime home front, attacks on outsiders. In June of 1943, Drunken white servicemen went on a rampage for seven days through the Los Angeles Barrio, beating up Hispanic youths, tearing off their zoot suits. This story from Downbeat Magazine announces a July 1944 benefit concert to help victims of the violence, as does this ad. There's a performer who's gonna appear on on this song whose name doesn't appear on this ad, but I'll talk about him later. This concert, produced a record that had a profound influence on popular music. The star of the concert was Jean Baptiste Illinois Jaquette, born in 1931 in Louisiana and raised in Houston. His playing on this record exalts the honking, squealing style of saxophone player playing that's going to become the mainstay of rhythm and blues and later of rock and roll, and as we go forward, you're going to hear this saxophone sound again and again this is blues part two In 1946, the wartime decline in big bands, hastened by the draft and the increased cost of touring, brought the big band era to an end. In December, the big bands of Benny Goodman, Woody Herman, Benny Carter, Tommy Dorsey, Ina Ray Hutton, Harry James, Les Brown, Jack Teagarden, all of them closed down. But that same year, a song written and recorded by Mississippian author Big Boy Crudup was released. This is Big Boy Crudup. His song never made it to the music charts. But in 1954, it was recorded in an imitative copy by Elvis Presley in his debut at Sun Records. This is Arthur Crudup's song, that's all right. In 1946, a novelty rhythm and blues song went to number two on the R and B charts and number two on the pop charts. Now novelty songs would become a staple of 1950s rock and roll and this song's tagline soon became well known across the United States. And this song illustrates early tensions, tensions still echoed today between middle class black people who looked down on rhythm and blues and the black working class population that enjoyed it the NAACP attacked this song for depicting hurtful stereotypical views of drunken black men and here is that song old band's been out to
1: the club having
0: a little ball
1: tonight my friend Richard went home early you know got the only key to the house. I'm going to have to knock on the door to see if I can get in. Open the door, Rich. See, Richard sleeps in the back room. It's kind of hard to hear. Maybe i better knock a little louder. Open the door, Rich. I don't think Richard heard me yet. Knock one more time to see what's going to happen here. The door Richard. Open the door and let me in. open the door, Richard. Richard, Richard, why
0: don't
1: you open that door? Richard, open up the door, man.
0: Now one of the independent companies that helped create rock and roll, King Records, was started in 1943 as a country label catering to Cincinnati's white migrants from the South, but soon it began adding rhythm and blues artists to its roster. One King artist was Wynoni Harris, a Nebraskan. In December of 1947, he recorded a cover, or an imitative copy, of a song originally recorded in New Orleans. The New Orleans version was made into a local hit by popular local disc jockey, Papa Stoppa, Papa was a white man who was fed black slang by a Dillard University professor hired by the station. (laughs) Wynoni Harris' version became a number one R&B hit and spawned a series of rocking records. And here is that song, Good Rockin' Tonight. In 1948, record buyers were offered two new alternatives to the 78 RPM record, the 33 and a third long playing record and the 45 RPM record. These new formats helped to divide the record buying public. The long playing 33 and a third was especially suited for classical music. Young people who'd begun to listen to disc jockeys like the shorter single popular song recorded on the the 45, and they like the portability of the new records too. This 1949 ad from Billboard magazine shows a variety of artists appearing on the new record format. And programming aimed at black audiences boomed in the post-war years. Between 1949 and 1954, the number of radio stations beaming all are part of their program specifically to Negroes, increased 1,000%. First white, and then increasingly black disc jockeys, played and promoted rhythm and blues, most of them aiming at black listeners, but captivating more and more young whites. Among the most successful rhythm and blues artists was Louis Jordan. This is Louis Jordan appearing at Atlanta City Auditorium he's born in arkansas in 1908 he began turning out a string of rhythm and blues hits between 1938 and 1946 and in that period sold 78s. his songs reflect the experiences of city blacks pilgrims to urban america from the rural countryside a working class just relocated from country life and here is one of his biggest songs <laughs>
2: To New Orleans, then you can understand just what I mean. Now all through the week it's quiet as a mouth, but on Saturday night they go from house to house. You don't have to pay the usual admission if you're a cook or a waiter or a good musician. So if you happen to be just passing by, stopping at the Saturday night fish fry, now my buddy and me was on the main stem. Fooling around, just me and him. We decided we could use a little something to eat, so we went to a house on Rampart Street. We knocked on the door and it opened with ease, and a lush little miss said, "Come in, please." And before we could even bat an eye, we were right in the middle of a big fish fry. It was rocking, it was rocking. You never see that stopping and stopping till the break of dawn. It was rocket. It was You never see such stuff and shut up until the break of dawn. In
0: 1951, a husband and wife team, she's a country and western singer from Pasadena, and he's a musical wizard from Waukesha, Wisconsin, recorded a song which was on the pop charts for nine weeks and went to number two on the black charts. It was one of the first hits to use massive overdubbing. Now, Les Paul was a cross between Thomas Edison and Django (laughs) Reinhardt. You know, my wife and I saw Les Les Paul in New York City two weeks ago. He will soon be 93 years old. He uh, had a stroke, but has all the facility you think that he ever had. And uh, I don't know if he has become a dirty old man, or always was and is using his age now to allow this to come out. But if you're ever in New York on a Monday night, go to the Iridium and uh, he appears there every Monday night. Anyway, using a tape recorder given to him by Bing Crosby, he modified this tape recorder to allow him and his wife to accompany themselves and he was able to build up layer and layer of voices and guitars. But all these gimmicks aside, what is remarkable in this song is his solo. Many critics consider this to be the first rock and roll guitar solo. And here he is.
3: If you would come to
0: that's the first rock and roll guitar solo. Many music scholars think that a 1951 release is the first real rock and roll record. It is a constant classic of rhythm and blues and later of rock and roll, the car song. Uh, And here's a list of uh, 1950s car songs. You can see it's enormous. This song is the creation of a band put together by Isaiah Luther, Ike Turner. Turner was born in 1931 just outside Clarksdale, Mississippi. Clarksdale is a blues town. Legend has blues giant Robert Johnson trading his soul to the devil just outside Clarksdale in the middle 1930s. And this is uh, Jackie Brinson. That's Ike Turner sitting at the piano and in this music you'll hear him playing the piano not always very well. (laughs) This song was released under the name of the singer that's the uh, jackie brinston the saxophone with the saxophone released under the singer's name with an invented name for the band jackie brinston with his delta cats it became a number one r and hit and here is that song and uh, here's a picture of a car that uh, commemorates the song <laughs> Now musical history is full of complaints that a certain kind of music is licentious or promoted lewdness. The sexual nature of some rhythm and blues songs is just unmistakable. Male singers eat cherry pie, they bake jelly roll, they squeeze lemons, they churn milk till the butter comes, they love dripping honey. And rhythm and blues and later rock and roll and rap today suffered all these complaints But a 1951 Rhythm and Blues song full of suggestive lyrics spent 30 weeks on the R&B charts, including 14 weeks at number one, and crossed over to a respectable number 17 on the pop charts. The song is about a sexual braggart with his roots in 19th century minstrel shows where he's called Jim Dandy or Dan Tucker. In 1921, he's called Dapper Dan. In 1931, Bessie Smith calls him Hustin' Dan. It has another claim to rock and roll history. The songwriter Billy Ward argues that the disc jockey Alan Freed named it a rock and roll song. Billy Ward said Alan Freed used the expression rock and roll to describe the music for the first time, even though the phrase had been part of American vernacular as a synonym for sex in song and speech for ages. Freed's biographer disputes this claim. At least we know Alan Freed had used the phrase rock and roll as early as 1951. This is a 1955 Alan, Alan Freed poster. And here is that controversial song. <laughs>
1: 60 minute man. If you don't believe I'm all I say, come up here and take my hand. When I let you go, you'll cry. Oh yes, he's a 60 minute man. There'll be 15 minutes of kissing. Then you holler, please don't stop. Don't stop. There'll be fifty minutes teasing, and fifty minutes pleasing, and fifty minutes of blowing my top. If your man ain't treating you right, come up and see old Dan. I'll rock 'em, roll 'em all night long. I'm a sixty-minute man.
0: In the post-war years. Younger music fans continued looking for a dance beat and excitement in their music. Softer singers like Bing Crosby and Frank Sinatra were replaced by belters like Frankie Lane. White youngsters who wanted to buy black records faced problems, explained by Atlanta disc jockey, Daddy Sears. That's Daddy Sears circa 1940. He remembered much later the breakthrough as far as the white teenager started about 1952, but it was gradual, and white teenagers didn't want to go to the record shop in their community and buy a black record. It was frowned on, you know, like buying marijuana today. (laughs) What white teenagers attracted to black music lacked was a white teenage idol, a figure like them, someone close to their ages, someone who understood their longings and their heartbreaks, somebody white who sang black, They found him in Johnny Ray. His first hit spent 11 weeks in 1951 as number one on the pop chart. It was also number one on the R&B chart. Johnny Ray was the only white act at a black club in Detroit when he was spotted by a disc jockey who told a record company about this white man who sang with a black gospel intensity. The song's crossover was very impressive but Ray's frantic performance style was even more so. He was what Sam Phillips, who discovered Elvis Presley, wanted when he said, I got to thinking how many records you could sell, if you could find white performers who could play and sing in the same exciting way. This is Johnny Ray, live in London. If sends
1: a letter, It's no secret You'll feel better If you cry When waking from a bad dream Don't you sometimes think It's only false emotions That you feel lost If your heart is easy And will to love In September 1952,
0: A Philadelphia television show called American Bandstand was broadcast for the first time. The host was Bob Horn, and his successor, Dick Clark, remembered that Horn knew about the ways that DJs like Alan Freed were making by playing rhythm and blues for young white audiences, so Horn quickly began programming more rhythm music. In January 1953, three months after Bandstand's local debut, the nation's number one country and western singer, Hank Williams, died. MGM quickly released four songs he had recorded the year before. One of them, Kalijah, became a posthumous number one country hit for 23 weeks and rated 23 on the pop charts. Born in Alabama in 1923, Williams learned to play guitar from a black street musician named Ruth Payne, also known as T-Tot. Hank Williams said, All the musical training I ever had was from him. I don't know one note from another. Now listen to this song's two tempos. It begins with an opening tom-tom beat that gives way to what Carl Perkins said was something hidden close to rockabilly music.
1: Elijah was a wooden Indian Standing by the door He fell in love Made over in the antique store. Collide, just stood there and never let it show. So she could never answer yes or no. He always wore his Sunday feathers and held a to Tommy Hall. The maiden wore her beads and braids and hoped someday he'd talk. Collide, Too stubborn to ever show a sign because his heart was made of naughty pine. Oh, Elijah, he never got a kiss. Oh, Elijah, he don't know what he missed. Is it any wonder that his face is red? Elijah, that poor old wooden head.
0: One month after Hank Williams scored a hit from the grave, a seminal song spent seven weeks at number one on the black charts. It also launched the careers of two teenage songwriters, Jerry Lieber and Mike Stoller, and later Elvis Presley. Presley's 1956 version of this song became one of the biggest rock and roll hits. The song was Hound Dog, and the singer was Willie Mae Thornton born in Alabama in 1926. Hound Dog was released on Houston's Peacock Records, a label opened in 1949 by Don Roby, a black Jewish man of Irish descent. <laughs> he is a pioneer in black music recording and promotion. This is Don Roby. He had said about one of his songs, if that's not a hit, I'll eat my hat. Apparently it wasn't. Now, the sexual suggestiveness of songs like 60-Minute Man wasn't limited to men. Women singers like Big Mama Thornton could make their own demand for sexual independence. Songs like Don't Come Too Soon, Can't Get Enough of That Stuff, Good Rockin' Daddy, said women had a right to sexual fulfillment on their own terms. 60 Minutes wasn't enough for Ruth Brown. She wanted 5, 10, 15 hours of your love. Dinah Washington wanted a big, long, shiny, black thing which may have been a Cadillac. (laughs) Now, Hound Dog, (coughs) Hound Dog, Hound Dog was written for a woman singing about a man who has outlived his sexual usefulness. Another rhythm and blues group, (coughs) Freddie Bell and the Bell Boys recorded a cover and Elvis Presley heard them perform it live during his first unsuccessful las vegas appearance in 1956 presley's guitarist scotty moore said we stole it straight from them he already knew the song but when we seen those guys do it he said that's a natural and in the studio on the outtakes you can hear elvis presley say let's do it the way them boys did it but here's the way big mama thornton did it
3: you ain't nothing
0: In 1953, rhythm and blues music was listened to by more and more white teenagers, and a small but growing army of disc jockeys now played rhythm and blues music to service black radio listeners. By the early 1950s, most southern cities had black-oriented radio stations. Uh, this is a poster for W R D, and next, an uh, advertisement for W.A.O.K. W-R-D and W.A.O.K. were black audience Atlanta stations, W R D was the first black-owned station in the country. One W R disc jockey was D. Robert Scott, the man who's got everything that's hot. His on-air patter went, ain't nothing to it but to do it, and I got to do it because I'm so used to it. <laughs> and W.E.R.D.'s and later W.A.O.K.'s leading disc jockey was Alley Pat Patrick, shown here. A 1953 song by a group with an avian appellation, The Crows, reached number two on the R&B charts and number 14 on the pop charts. This was the 1st 50 50s-style doo-wop song to sell a million records. Its success prompted Billboard magazine to write in April, the fastest-growing segment of the record business is the rhythm and blues field. More than 700 jocks across the country devote their airtime exclusively to rhythm and blues platters teenagers are instigating the current trend toward R&B and are largely responsible for keeping its sales mounting. This is real feel good music. If you don't like this song there is really something seriously wrong with you. This is G. <laughs> The next song by Big Joe Turner has its share of double entendre. It went to number one on the R&B charts and number 22 on the pop charts. Bill Haley's cover version went to number seven on the pop charts and both of them sold a million records, making this song the first giant rock and roll hit. Haley's version cleaned up Joe Turner's song. While Joe Turner sang, wearing low dresses, the sun comes shining through. I can't believe all that mess belongs to you. (laughs) In Bill Haley's version, it becomes, Wearing those dresses, your hair done up so nice. Where Joe Turner sang, I believe in my soul, you're the devil in nylon hose. Bill Haley sang, I believe you're doing me wrong, and now I know. Elvis Presley's 1956 version mixed both Haley's and Turner's lyrics. But here's Big Joe Turner's song.
2: Hudson Bay When you wear old dresses, sun comes shining through.
0: copying songs, like Bill Haley's and Elvis Presley's covers of Shake, Rattle and Roll, was an old story in the music business, and it's not restricted to white artists covering black ones. In 1954, Atlantic Records recorded a new black group covering a Patty Page hit, Cross Over the Bridge. But that same day, they also recorded a nonsense song that became one of their early doo-wop hits and the first independent label rhythm and blues single to reach the top 10 on the pop charts, placing number two on the R&B charts and number five on the pop charts. Now this song attracted both black and white teenage record buyers, just as the Supreme Court was declaring that these youngsters should have to go to school together and as the music itself was becoming more and more controversial. Uh, This is the White Citizens Council idea of uh, what ought to be done with this music an article in usa confidential communicated an identical view of the music and was quick to give it a disparaging racial identification they wrote like a heathen religion it is all tied up with tom toms and hot jive and ritualistic orgies of erotic dancing weed smoking and mass media with an african jungle background white girls are recruited for colored lovers Another cog in the giant delinquency is the radio disc jockey. We know that many platter spinners are hopheads. Many others are reds, left-wingers, or hecklers of social convention. Through disc jocks, kids get to know colored and other hit musicians. They frequent places the radio oracle's plug, which is done with design to hook Jews and guarantee a new generation subservient to the mafia. But... But the success of rhythm and blues songs, like the next one, forced the music industry to pay attention to this expanding market. One response was to increase covers, and the cover of the black version nonsense song by a white group became a number one pop hit. The original version of this is the first record I ever bought, but this is the chords version of this song.
1: Life could be a dream Life could be a dream Do, 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 Life could be a dream If I could take you up Paradise up above If you would tell me I'm the only one That you love Life would be a dream Sweetheart, hello, hello again Shaboom and open with me again Boom, boom, boom Ding, 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 ding Lang, 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 lang Oh, 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 biff a but oh, but her Life would be a dream If only all my precious plans would come true If you would let me spend my whole life loving you Her Life would be a dream Sweetheart Every time I look at you, something is all my If you do what I want you to do, maybe we'd be so fine. Life could be a dream, shaboom, if I could take you up, in paradise above. Shaboom, and tell me, darling, I'm the only one that you love. Life could be a dream, sweetheart, hello, hello again. Shaboom, and hope for me
0: to get
3: boom. And
0: By 1954, as Bill Haley's music became less country and more influenced by rhythm and blues, he changed his group's name from The Saddlemen to The Comets. He'd successfully covered two black hits, Rocket 88 and Rock the Joint, and had a pop hit with Crazy Man Crazy. In May 54, his song Rock Around the Clock entered the Pop Top 40 and peaked at 23, a modest success. But it had a second life, bought about by post-war prosperity and highway construction, which contributed to the spread of the suburbs. One consequence was an increase in drive-in theaters from less than 1% of all movie venues pre-war to 20% of all theaters by 1953. The drive-in, in turn, was a tribute to America's growing car culture reflected in popular songs like 1950's Hot Rod Race and 1951's Rocket 88, and to the growing market strength of teenagers. Teenagers were believed to be the controlling sector of the drive-in audience, so teenage movies were sure to follow. In 1955, Rock Around the Clock opened one of the first teenage movies, Blackboard Jungle. The movie was about juvenile delinquency. Theater audiences danced in the aisles. Others cut up the theater seats with switchblade knives, like that. <laughs> Just wanna make sure you're paying attention. <laughs> and uh, here's a book cover, you know, tying it all together, sex, rock and roll, juvenile delinquency, the whole thing. The song and the movie were news. The song was number one on the pop charts for eight weeks, number three on the block charts, and this is Bill Haley's version of this song. One,
1: two, one, two, three o'clock, four o'clock, rock. Five, six, seven o'clock, eight o'clock, rock. Nine, ten, eleven o'clock, twelve o'clock, rock. We're gonna rock around the clock tonight. Put your glad rags on, join me, we'll have some fun when the clock strikes one. We're gonna rock around the clock tonight. We're gonna rock, 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 rock. till broad daylight. We're gonna rock, we're gonna rock, we're gonna rock around the clock tonight
0: in the fall of 1953 a truck driver named elvis presley recorded two demos at sam phillips memphis recording service a year later phillips called presley back into the studio and one of the songs he recorded was Arthur Crudup's That's All Right. Presley later told an interviewer, I used to listen to Arthur Crudup bang his box the way I do now, and I said that if I ever got to the place where I could feel all that Arthur felt, I'd be a music man like nobody ever saw. And Presley's biographer, Peter Guralnick describes a friend visiting Presley's home in Memphis in 1955. He found him with a stack of records, Ray Charles and Big Joe Turner and Big Mama Thornton and Arthur Big Boy Crudup, that he studied with the avidity that other kids focused on their college exams. He listened over and over, seeming to hear something that no one else could hear. Now this is Elvis Presley, Scotty Moore, and Bill Black in 1954, the trio we're about to hear. Elvis Presley's version of Arthur Crudup's song changes some lyrics, but Presley pitched his voice high like Arthur Crudup's and slapped his guitar strings for syncopation just as Big Boy Crudup had done. This was the first Elvis Presley record and while it did not score beyond regional country and western charts, it brought Presley to the attention of RCA, it won him a spot on the Grand Ole Opry and regular appearances on the Louisiana Hayride. Here is Elvis Presley's version of Arthur Crudup's song. White teenagers were already buying the black originals. A demonstration of rhythm and blues ability to compete with white impersonations came in October, 1954 with a song recorded by the black group, The Penguins. A cover by the white crew cuts was recorded and the original went head to head with the copy. The white version went to number three on the pop charts. The black prototype was number one on the black charts and number eight on the pop charts. Chart placement aside, the black version frequently sold more records but received less radio play while the white version of this song was number fourteen on the bestseller list it was on the top ten most played record list In the middle 1950s, rhythm and blues began to break into larger markets, but it also began to change, adopting new forms that would break through in the 1960s. One of the architects of R&B's success and its change was born Ray Charles Robinson in Albany, Georgia in 1930. He listened to the Grand old Opry as a child. The absence of black music programming then meant that many blacks of his generation were exposed to white musical forms. This exposure, in turn, allowed R&B to develop some stylistic closeness to pop and country forms. He migrated to Seattle in 1947. He had a series of small hits imitating Nat Cole and Charles Brown, but with I Got a Woman, he found his voice. This is a Ray Charles. Um, This song is based on Professor Alex Bradford's My Jesus is All the World to Me and is one of several Ray Charles songs rewritten from church songs. A year later at his first RCA session, Elvis Presley recorded this song for his first album. His album sold several million copies, was number one for 10 weeks and introduced a mass audience to rock and roll. This is Ray Charles' version of My Jesus is All the World to Me.
1: Yeah, I got a woman way over town that's good to me. Oh, yeah. I got a warm up way
0: over town that's good to me oh yeah Charles Edward Anderson Berry was twenty-nine years old when he became teenage america's first guitar hero in nineteen fifty five his song Maybelline was number one on the R and B charts for eleven weeks number five on the pop charts it blended country music with good time rhythm and blues. And like other Berry songs, it had lyrics that appealed to teenagers. Unlike some R&B artists, white listeners easily understood him. He said, I stressed my diction so it was harder and whiter. Like Rocket 88 before it, this is a car song. But it's more than that. It's a hot rod song that speaks directly to the youthful car culture. This is Chuck Berry's Maybelline.
1: (laughs)
2: Cadillac rolling on open road, not run my VA 4 Cadillac doing about nine to five,
1: bumper to bumper rolling side to side. Maybelline, why can't you be true? Oh, Maybelline, why can't you be true?
2: You didn't start back doing the thing you used to do.
0: Richard Wayne Penniman was born in Macon, Georgia in 1932. He is heir to and was influenced by two pioneering gay performers, Atlanta's Billy Wright and South Carolina-born singer-pianist Eskew Reader, who performed as Escarita. From Escarita, Little Richard learned phrasing. He really taught me a lot, he said. This is Billy Wright. About Billy Wright, Little Richard said, I copied him as far as dressing, the hairdo, and the makeup because he was the only man I ever seen wearing makeup before. And this is Little Richard. Now, Richard's deliberately chosen androgynous and sexually ambiguous appearance actually enhanced, rather than restricted, his appeal. <clears throat> he posed no sexual threat. He said, by wearing this makeup, I could play white clubs and the white people didn't mind the white girls screaming over me. This song made Little Richard a rock star the music's premier wild man. It went to number two on the R&B charts and number 17 on the pop charts. This is Little Richard's Tootie Fruity.
1: Womp-bomb-a-loo-momp-a-loom-bomb-bomb-bomb Tootie Fruity, <laughs> oh Rudy Tootie Fruity, oh Rudy Tootie Fruity, oh Rudy Tootie Fruity, oh Rudy Tootie Fruity, oh Rudy Womp-bomb-a-loo-momp-a-loom-bomb-bomb-bomb I got a girl named Booty she knows just what to do. I've got a girl named Sloop. She knows just what to do. She rocks to the east, she rocks to the west. But she's the girl that I love her. To the oh Rudy Tootie the oh Rudy Tootie the oh Rudy Tootie the oh Rudy Tootie the oh Rudy My wife, Bob, Luma, Blah,
0: Blah, 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 Carl Lee Perkins was born in 1932 to a sharecropper family near the Mississippi River in Tennessee. As a youngster, he listened to the Grand Ole Opry. But a black blues man, Uncle John Westbrook, who lived a field away, made the greatest impression on him. Perkins said, I'd ask my daddy if I could go to Uncle John's and pick some. It was his inspiration that made me know what it was I wanted to do for the rest of my life. I could never get away from what was buried in my mind of the sound he made on that simple little guitar. Perkins described his music, Rockabilly, as a countryman song with a black man's rhythm. Perkins' song did for Sun Records what Elvis Presley could not do, it produced a hit. It attracted others to Sun Records, including Jerry Lee Lewis and Roy Orbison. It was on Billboard's country chart for half a year and number one for three weeks. It was number two on the black charts for four weeks, and it was number two on the pop charts for four weeks, the first record at the top of all three charts. Elvis Presley recorded it in January, 1956, but RCA, but he made RCA records hold it back to keep from hurting per- Perkins or Phillips. This is Carl Perkins, Blue Suede Shoes.
1: Well, it's one for the money, two for the show, three to get ready, now go cat. Go. Don't you step on my blue suede shoes? You can do anything Lay off of my blue suede shoes. But well, you can knock me down, step in my face, slander my name all over the place and do anything that you wanna do. But uh uh-uh, uh honey, lay off of my shoes, don't you? Step on my blue you shoes, do for they
0: for my blue suede shoes. Now Elvis Presley left Sun Records for RCA a month before Perkins recorded Blue Suede Shoes. His first RCA session was in Nashville and one of the songs was Heartbreak Hotel. It was number one on the country charts for 17 weeks, number three on the R&B charts, number one on the pop charts for eight weeks. It was the biggest single of 1956. Now, Sexy dog, isn't he? Presley's overt sexuality for many confirmed the debasing effects of rock and roll. In retrospect, many now believe he made rock and roll safe for white teenage consumption, especially for white girls. But regardless of the controversy he engendered, he became the biggest entertainer of the 20th century. Rock and roll music was here to say. Is a... Uh, also an ad following this for rock and roll in Wichita. And here is uh, Elvis Presley singing Heartbreak Hotel.
1: Well, since my baby left me, will I find a new
2: place to dwell. Well, it's down at the end of Lonely Street, that Heartbreak Hotel where I'll be. I'll be just so lonely, baby. Well, I'm so lonely. I'll be so lonely. I could die. Oh, the it's is crowded, you still can find some room.
0: Presley had 11 more hits in 1956, including four at number one. He was the fourth most played artist on R&B stations. Over the next seven years, 24 of his songs were hits on the black charts, including four at number one. By the time of his triumph in 1956, the elements of rock and roll were all in place. New performers who appealed to the young audience had appealed, appeared singing and playing songs that young people could dance to with lyrics that spoke to them. The disc jockeys and their young audiences were firmly in charge. New York's franchise on the pop stream, typified by Ten Pan Alley's B- Brill Building, did not place one song on the top 10 charts in 1955. But three R&B songs, including Chuck Berry's Maybelline, crossed over to the country and western and pop charts, and Barry's version of his song was a pop and an R&B hit. In 1956, the Encyclopedia Britannica's Book of the Year gave the new music's name official sanction. They included an entry on rock and roll and called it popular music at its lowest ebb. (laughs) A minimum of melody line and a maximum of rhythmic noise deliberately competing with the artistic ideals of the jungle itself. The Encyclopedia Britannica wasn't the only critic that saw the music as threatening. For many, that's what the music was then. For many, that's what it is now. But this music and its history has much to teach us. As I said at the beginning, rock and roll history is American history, and like all history, it's suffused with race. Like all American history, It has its share of tragedies and triumphs, heroes and villains, but it is ultimately the history of survival, of cultures clashing and mingling, the history of the creation of a more just and democratic society. Now, here is the theme song of the 20th century effort to create that society, written in 1900 and sung by Ray Charles.
1: I got something in my bones. Make me want a shot, hallelujah.